kind of had some time this week to kind of think back over some things, and I want to I just want to reiterate a couple things to hopefully clarify and not spend a whole lot of time because I, I want us to move at a little bit faster pace through the book. Um, but let's go ahead and start reading at verse 1. Daniel chapter 8. In the third year of King Belshazzar's reign, I, Daniel, had a vision after the one that had already appeared to me. Now, I want to go ahead and show you this graphic right here. Uh, the column on the left, if I can get my laser pointer to work, this column right here is representing the, the vision that we saw in Daniel chapter 2. I'm not going to belabor that one again. I think we all know that one pretty well. If you don't, then go back and listen to some of the recordings. But each level of the image has a different metal, which represents successive empires or world empires that will be on the earth until the return of Jesus Christ. Um, we, you and I, are prophetically speaking somewhere right here. All right there at the very end, okay? The ten toes have not happened as of yet. Now, in Daniel chapter 7, there were another, another vision that uh, Daniel has given. And it's telling the same story, but it's using these four beasts. And the first one, if you remember, represented Babylon. The second one, Medo-Persia. The third one, Greece. Uh, the fourth one, Rome. But if you remember, Rome's in two parts, right? Just like we saw the two legs of iron with the ten toes. You have this beast that has ten horns. And up comes a little horn. That was the subject that we talked about over the last couple of weeks. In Daniel chapter 8, because the Babylonian Empire is now about to fall, this very first world empire right here that was discussed with the winged lion and the head of gold is now about over. In the very next chapter, we're going to get into the handwriting on the wall story, which, you know, we, we've all heard that phrase, right? We've seen the handwriting on the wall. Well, it comes from that. It means your goose is cooked. See, that's another one. <laughs> that's a local, uh, a more modern version of it's over, right? But in this chapter, because of that, God is going to now give Daniel another vision, but he's only going to focus on this relationship right here. He's going to give you the beginning of the Medo-Persian Empire, which again in Daniel 2 is the two arms of silver, which in Daniel chapter 7 is represented by the bear. Here it's going to be represented by a goat, okay, a goat with two horns. One horn is longer than the other. Now, you've been listening to these images now for a long time. You guys know exactly why one horn is longer than the other, don't you? Because you have the Medes and the Persians. One was stronger, one was weaker, okay? But then he's going to see that there's going to be another animal that's going to come through, and this is going to be a one long-horned animal, and that is representative of Alexander the Great, Okay? So what you're going to see is a battle take place between these two creatures. And that's what this chapter is going to be about. So let's go ahead and read some more. And look at verse 2 with me. In my vision I saw myself in the citadel of Susa, in the province of Elam. And in the vision I was beside the Uli Canal. Now somebody uh, last week had brought it up, but I want to mention it one more time. Susa is important to us for a couple reasons. One is because a lot of biblical kings that are mentioned in the Bible come from that area. It's also going to be the capital of the very next world empire. Um, the capital of the Persians is going to be um, Susa or Shushan in some of your Bibles. I think has Shushan. I think the older versions, King James has that. But it's also important because there's a very, very important biblical figure later on that comes out of this city that she's going to live here and she's going to be called for such a time as this and God's going to use this woman to save the Jewish people. Anybody remember her name? Yes, sir. I was thinking, say, I hope all my ladies know the name. Just call that one right out. 
Esther is an incredible woman of God, and uh, she is going to be here. But Daniel is either in Susa or he's having a vision in Babylon, in Susa, regardless of whatever. He's having this vision, and at least in the vision, he's there in Elam at the, the Uli Canal, and he's watching these things take place. So we're going to get into it here and see exactly what he's going to see in this vision. Let's go ahead and go to the next verse. Oh, yeah, remember this I showed you last week uh, on Google Maps. I thought this was kind of cute, but I was curious. I went, uh, you, you look on the right-hand side, that's Shush, Shush, which is Susan, Shushan in Persia. And ironically enough, if you take your Google Maps and you zoom in really close on Shushan, guess what you see? Anybody remember? The tomb of the prophet Daniel is there. Now, I don't know if that's the, the actual tomb, all right? But it doesn't matter. Tradition has it that he was buried there. So I find that interesting. And by the way, if you wanted to walk from Shushan over to Babylon, it's about a two-day walk, okay? So if you ever want to do that, there you go. And there's a close-up of the tomb of the prophet Daniel. Coat of Hammurabi was found there. We talked about that last week. That's not really important to our conversation this morning, but I, I threw that in there for extra, extra credit. Verse 3, I looked up, and there before me was a ram with two horns standing beside the canal, and the horns were long, but one of the horns was longer than the other. It grew up later. See, that's, again, the same picture. I watched the ram as it charged toward the west and toward the north and toward the south. No animal could stand against it, and none could rescue from its power. It did as it pleased, and it became great. So uh, this um, uh, other animal, um, this ram, or not the ram, the... Um, the goat, the shaggy goat, the he goat, thank you very much. He sees that the Persians are about to rise to power. And, and, and by the way, where's the capital of Persia going to be? Shushan, we just said it a moment ago. Good. So, so these, it, this animal is going to charge at this other creature and destroy it. This one long horn is going to destroy these other two. And that's a picture of Alexander the Great coming in and conquering the Persians with his armies. Um, tell you a little bit about this guy right here because we're going to be talking about him here in a minute his name is Xerxes he was the the last great ruler of Persia he's um this is the guy that's the king during the days of Esther so when she comes in she's terrified as because remember you don't just walk in on the king um to walk in on the king unannounced is to be killed right um if the king lowers his staff towards you then that's his sign of favor that you can come in. So she does this. And this is the guy here that you see in the picture withholding his staff. But um, he was a, a great military leader. He made different military forays into Europe uh, at the height of his power. He traveled with an army. And this is what made him so known and so feared is that he traveled along with 300,000 foot soldiers and their wives and their kids everywhere he went. Um, unimaginable feat, right, to, to be able to do that. But, um, but the Greeks were smart. Um, they, didn't, they didn't go out to meet him when uh, he came up to the Greek Isles the first time. They didn't come out to meet him. They didn't fight Xerxes on Xerxes' territory on the way that he likes to fight. What they did was actually interesting. Um, there's a very famous battle that takes place called the Battle of Thermopylae, or Thermopylae. And what they did is they led Xerxes and his 300,000 troops into what you and I, in modern military terms, would call a bottleneck, right? 
you couldn't get 300,000 through there. Well, they were able to defend, uh, Greece was able to defend itself because of using that. Anybody saw the, there was a horrible movie I didn't see. I saw the clean version of it. I watched the clean version of it. But 300, um, it is just a, a glorification of that battle, the Battle of Thermopylae, uh, where Leonidas was the, the king of the Spartans, and he goes out with 300 men. It's actually not true. He actually had around 3,000 men. But still, 3,000 versus 300,000, that's a big deal, right? And they were able to stave off uh, the Persians for a long period of time. They actually win the Battle of Thermopylae. Um, and uh, it, it, it causes a turn in the tide, and that's when Alexander rises to power during that time. Okay, let's read verse 5 together. So it says, As I was thinking about this, suddenly a goat with a prominent horn between its eyes came from the west, crossing the whole earth without touching the ground. Now, why is he doing this? I think it's important, not only for God's prophets, but for God's people, to keep the world in perspective, right? Because here we are, chronologically speaking, he's at the end of the Babylonian Empire. He has not even seen the Persians rise to power yet. From a worldly perspective, they're about to see a, a power rise that the world has never seen before. They're fearing uh, the power of the Persians. But with this insight, what does Daniel know? From Daniel's perspective, yeah, it's just another world empire. They're going to rise. And guess what? A few hundred years down the road, they're going to fall too. I've seen the whole thing from beginning to end. What does that create in the life of Daniel that normal, average, everyday people who does not have that knowledge, what, what advantage does that give Daniel? Perspective, right? And also maybe it helps you not ride the roller coasters of emotions that come with these types of things, right? Well, guess what? The same thing is true today. I don't care what happens in politics in America. I really don't. Somebody asked me the other day what I thought about something politically speaking. I said, well, guess what? I'm a political atheist. I don't have a lot of hope that either party's going to save us. I really don't. Um, you know why? Because proof's in the pudding. Amen? Uh, they have shown me by the fruit of their labors that they don't have my family's best interest at heart. I don't care what party it is. Okay? So instead of riding the roller coaster of the political party system and the media and all that, I take the perspective of Daniel. Guess what? This nation may rise. This nation's probably going to fall. There's going to be ones that will come after it. But the point is, is that there is a day coming when that stone cut without hands is going to hit those feet and all the nations of the world are going to come crumbling down and it will be given to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. I don't have to worry about nothing because that's what I hope for right there. Well, that gives you a confidence. Yes, David. So uh, to, if I'm honest, when I'm reading prophecy, I, it's Marvel Universe and you know I picture these monsters and, and all that. And yeah. It's, it's hard for me to relate personally with that. And with the images and pictures? Right, right. I, but it's in the Bible. Yeah. God wants us to, to hear it. And so what I've been doing lately is when I am presented with something like in a class or a sermon or whatever, uh, I ask myself, what is God wanting me to get from this? Yeah. You know, why am I hearing this right now or why am I experiencing this verse? And one, I think one thing that we can get from prophecy is, uh, number one, what you're talking about, the the security that we can feel that God is in control. He knows what's going to happen because he's already there. And so that's true on the global scale. That's also true in my life. So he knows what's going to happen with me today. And when it happens and I think, oh, my goodness, everything's out of control. How can, what can we do? 
I can be assured God's already there. He knew this was going to happen, and he's going to take you through it step by step. He's going to be with you. So that's one thing that we can get through prophecy. But I just encourage us, as you hear these things that are kind of hard to relate to personally, uh, look for those nuggets that God wants you to get from this verse. And it, it's going to be different from what I get. Yeah. But uh, that's, that's why we're studying this, and, and it's important that we study it. Very good. Thank you, David. And let me add to that, too, because I have heard in the past, I have, I've talked to people who uh, could care less about studying prophecy and, and, and think that it's a, something that we don't need to put an emphasis on. Let me tell you my 30-second reason why I think it's important, not only for what we just said. Um, One-third of your Bible is written in prophecy. One-third of your Bible is written in prophecy. Whether we're talking about the first coming of Christ or the second coming of Christ, a third of your Bible is devoted to those topics right there. So if you ignore prophecy, you're ignoring a big chunk of your Bible. Secondly, there is a biblical language that you and I are, that you and I need to learn. And that language is a language of pictures and types and shadows that's all throughout the Bible. There are certain things that God gives us, not only in Daniel, but also in later prophetic writings like the book of Revelation, that very specifically spell out and tell you things that are still yet future for, for us. So just like Daniel in his generation was able to see things manifest on the world stage that God had told them aforetime, you and I are living in a generation now, today, where you will, in the next few years, see on a world stage things unfold that were written in this book right here. You will remember this Bible class. I promise you. So the things that we're doing is preparatory. We're laying the groundwork to try to have some of this picture language in our hearts and our minds because when God starts to unveil dreams and visions to you, guess how he speaks? He speaks through the same kind of pictures. So if you have a, a broader understanding of the language of Scripture, the pictures of Scripture, when God begins to communicate to you through the Holy Spirit or when you start reading other prophetic books like the book of, uh, the book of Revelation, you're not going to look at that book cross-eyed going, I have no idea what that means because you know what a head means. You know what a horn means. You know what a beast means. You know what these things mean. These pictures all mean something. If I take you out and I took the, the letters S-T-O-P off of a stop sign, and all you had was that red, that red octagon, would you still know what it meant without the words on it? You would, because you understand the symbol. You understand the picture. Well, guess what? God wants you to understand the symbols and the pictures because these will communicate things to you that will be vitally important for your future. Did I sell it good enough? Okay, let's get back into the text. Thank you for that, David. Okay, verse 5. So as I was thinking about this, suddenly a goat with a prominent horn between its eyes came from the west, crossing the whole earth without touching the ground. So in other words, he's moving so fast, you can't see his feet even moving. It looks like he's just gliding across the surface of the earth. That's how fast he's going. The goat is represented by Alexander the Great. He's the one ruler of that empire, and that's why he's represented with a long, big horn. It's one guy, super powerful, Super fast. Can I say one more thing? Yeah, please, David. When Alexander the Great got to Jerusalem, the, the priest took the book of Daniel yes. to him and showed him this passage and said, this is talking about you. 
Yeah. And Alexander the Great cherished that moment. Yeah. And he actually kind of felt a little bit of a pride, like, oh, your God knew about me, huh? Apparently I have name recognition here, <laughs> you know, with the, with the Jewish God. But that's true because that's what spared Jerusalem. Because they brought out the scroll, and this scroll had already, I mean, just by looking at it, had aged several hundred years. And said, here, by the way, your name is written right here. Fascinating stuff. Now, a little bit more about Alexander the Great. He, um, he assumed the mantle of his father. His daddy's name was Philip of Macedon. And uh, he assumes the role of king at the age of 20 years old. I think he does his first military conquest locally there, like the age of 23. I mean, he was a super, super young guy, very, very talented. But, um, but you've heard me tell this story before. By the age of 30, he had, he had literally taken over the whole known world and had taken the boundaries from the, the Persian Empire and expanded them all the way up to India, which had never been done before. And um, 32 years old, he collapses on the bed in Babylon, and he's drunk, he's a skunk, he's just sad and depressed, and he's crying because he said, I have no more territories to conquer. You know, I mean, that's, that's amazing. And by the way, that's where he died. He died in Babylon. Babylon was going to be a capital, one of his main capitals, if not the, the capital. I can't remember. I think he was going to make it the capital. But um, he was in a drunken stupor. Huh? There are so many Alexandrians. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly right. Um, but he was in a drunken stupor one night, and, um, and that's when he died at the age of 32. Died of a fever or something like that. Okay, so here's what happens with this battle, verse 6. Oh, there he is, by the way. I forgot I put a picture of Alexander the Great in there. There's the actual mosaic showing you a little bit about what he could have looked like. Verse 6. It came toward the two-horned ram that I had seen standing beside the canal, and it charged at it in great rage. Now, remember who's, who's charging at who here? Yeah, Greece is charging Middle Persia. This is showing you the picture of how Middle Persia is going to fall one day. All right. Um, by the way, a little bit about a goat. A one-horned goat is, by the way, a symbol for the ancient Macedonians. If you go and you look at the archaeology of Macedon, Macedonians, you'll see that that symbol was used at that time. Um, in the Zodiac, which I do not, uh, uh, I don't uh, admonish you to ever look at one. They don't have any bearing of your life whatsoever. But in the Zodiac, in that mysticism, if you will, um, Ares is a ram and is associated with Persia. Greece is associated with Capricorn, which is a goat, interestingly enough. Okay, so I thought I'd throw that in there a little bit. Verse 7. I saw it attack the ram furiously, striking the ram and shattering its two horns. The ram was powerless to stand against it. The goat knocked it to the ground and trampled on it, and none could rescue the ram from its power. The goat became very great. But at the height of its power, the large horn was broken off. And in its place, four prominent horns grew up toward the four winds of heaven. Now tell me the story. I'm giving you the pictures, but we've been talking about these pictures over and over and over again. So hopefully now you're starting to get kind of an interpretive language in your heart as to what these pictures mean. So one, the, the, the one has the two horns, they get broke off. That's a picture of what? Medo-Persia. And when the horns break, what's that a picture of? Falling, right? Powers falling. Now, this other one has this one long horn, and it charges in furiously, really, really fast. But then his horn gets broken off, and out of that comes four other horns. Tell me the story. 
four generals, four other powers. Think of a horn as a power. That great long horn is broken off. The power of Alexander the Great falls. Out from that power vacuum then comes four other horns. We know it as the four generals, right? And uh, I won't take time to go back through all of them, but here's a map up here. This shows you the area. You had uh, Seleucus over here. Uh, Seleucus was, um, well, you had Cassander, uh, who had Macedon and Greece up here. Uh, you had Lysimachus, who had Thrice and Bithynia and kind of that area up here. Ptolemy took Egypt and this area down here. You actually did have a fifth one, Antigonus, and he had this middle part right here. But what happened is, is that very early on, within about the first three years after Alexander the Great's death, these guys go to war with each other. Seleucus and Cassander team up to go against Antigonus. And they take that whole territory. And they split it in half. And Seleucus takes pretty much everything here over. And he winds up spending the rest of his life fighting against Ptolemy over where their boundary should be. Well, guess what? Who is right here in between these two guys? What nation is located right there? Israel. Israel is located right there. So during this period of three or 400 years, you have this battle between the Seleucid Empire and the Ptolemaic Empire. Israel's right in between. This is the time period where a man, a little horn, rises to power from the, Seleucus, from the Seleucid Empire known as Antiochus Epiphanes. Okay, so let me tell you quickly the story and what happens. Ptolemy is down here fighting with Seleucus. Seleucus is fighting with Ptolemy. Israel's in the middle. And finally, Seleucus says, I'm done with this. I want to go down there and take that territory too. So he had already fought Antigonus. They had taken over most of that territory. He then sets his sights down to go down to try to, to, to destroy Ptolemy and take the Egyptian territory. Well, it turns out there's a new power on the block that's just starting to rise, just starting to get a lot of influence. And it has a lot of influence down in Egypt, too. And guess who that emerging power is? Rome. Now, Rome is not the big dog on the block right now, but they're powerful. And they, they scare Seleucus just enough to push him back north. So he leaves. He lets go of, of to, the, the Egyptian empire, doesn't want to touch it no more. But he wants to create a buffer zone. He wants to make sure that these guys don't come up here and cause trouble. So he creates a buffer zone. And so on his way back home, he turns his sights toward Israel and decides to conquer Israel. And that's when he creates the buffer zone. So when Antiochus Epiphany rises to power, and, and this is where you have in the Bible, this, this time period is called the intertestamental period. It's called the 400 silent years. They're not silent because we're reading about them right here <laughs> in prophecy, but we're reading about it in advance, you see. Um, but what does this guy do? This, this guy, Antiochus Epiphanes, he goes down there. He, uh, you know, he, he enslaves the Jewish people. He outlaws the reading of Torah. He outlaws the sacrifices at the temple. He sacrifices a pig on the altar. Um, he does all these horrible, horrible things. He outlaws circumcision. Anything Jewish, he outlaws because he's trying to completely stamp out the Jewish people. He wants to completely control and conquer them. Well, the straw that broke the camel's back, if you will, is when he decided to erect an idol in the temple mount or on the temple itself. Now, we don't know, looking back from history, we don't know if it was a, a, a Zeus or if it was Apollo or one of those others, but he erected an idol, and that's when Judas Maccabeus led a revolt 
against uh, Antiochus Epiphanes. It took them three and a half years, roughly three years, to overthrow that power. But they got rid of Seleucus. And uh, they celebrate um, a, a holiday every single year that commemorates the, the setting of the people free from Antiochus Epiphanes. They call it the Festival of Lights in, uh, in the Old Testament outside the Bible, but um, also it's called what? Anybody know? It's called Hanukkah. Every single year they celebrate the, the setting of the, the people free from Antiochus Epiphanes, and that's what it's called right there, Hanukkah. Okay, any thoughts before we move forward? Yes, sir. I just think it's interesting how often the number three and a half comes up. Yeah, three and a half. And the reason why um, I tell you these things is so important because if you remember, the little horn of Antiochus Epiphanes, that little horn rises after the aftermath of the Seleucid Empire. Does that make sense? You have the one long horn that's broke off. You have the four that come up. You have the four generals that we just showed how they divided their empire. Out of the Seleucid Empire rises that one little horn. And for three and a half years, he wages war against the Jewish people, overcomes them. And then halfway through, the last three and a half years is the Jewish people coming and fighting against him and taking it back. That is a picture and a model of what's going to happen at the very end. There's going to be another little horn that will rise up from among the ten, which is the revival of some kind of Roman power at the end of days. And that one little horn is going to be just like that first little horn. He's going to do the same kinds of things. He's going to sound the same kind of way. He's going to enact some of the same kinds of laws. The only difference is, and by the way, there's a seven-year period. Right? There's a seven-year period. Three and a half years in to that seven-year period, he cuts off the sacrifice, just like the first one did back in the days of Daniel. So that's why it's so important to understand types, pictures, and shadows, because the, God, the Bible is giving you a language through which you can understand future prophecy. Does that make sense? Okay. Let's read verse 9 together, and then we'll uh, get a little further before the bell rings. Verse 9, Out of one of them came another little horn, which started small, but grew in power to the south and to the east and toward the beautiful land. So now we're going to talk about Antiochus Epiphanes again, but we've already talked about this quite a bit, so we're just going to move right ahead. Verse 9. Oh, I had it back over here. Yeah, yeah. Verse 9. Toward the beautiful land, the, that is an idiom uh, in the Old Testament, Eretz Hatshibi, and it means glorious land. And um, it was called that at the time when Seleucus was fighting the Ptolemies. The Ptolemies had it by the way. They, they had Israel for a long period of time, but it was taken by the Seleucids in the battle, right? And that land was called beautiful land by the Jews. So it's just using another, another term for it, okay? Uh, it grew. Now, out of one of them came another little horn. This is Antiochus Epiphanes, which started small, but grew in power to the south. See, the Ptolemies, toward the south, toward the east. Remember, he took over the other territory for Lysimachus. And toward the beautiful land, that's Israel, right? It grew until it reached the host of heavens, the host of the heavens, and it threw some of the starry hosts down to the earth and trampled on them. Now, who are the host of heavens? Well, you and I would automatically think that's angels, right? It's actually not angels. If you look at several places in the Old Testament, Genesis 15, verse 5, Genesis 22, verse 17, 
um, Matthew 13, verse 43. Remember what God said to Abraham a long time ago. He says, I will make your children like the sand of the seashore and like what? Like the stars of heaven. Stars of heaven becomes a picture, an idiom, talking about the Jewish people. Okay? Talking about the Jewish people. So when it says he'll take some of the stars and throw them to the ground, what's that a picture of? Casting down the Jewish people, right? It's exactly what Antiochus Antiochus Epiphanes did. He came down and tried to destroy the Jewish people. Okay? Keep reading. So it reached uh, to the host of the heavens, and it threw some of the starry hosts down to the earth and trampled upon them. Now, it could also have a second meaning to it, because this happens again in the book of Revelation. It says that there's a war in heaven, and Satan and his angels are cast out, and they're thrown down to the earth. So it could also be a hint looking toward the future as well. We don't know for sure. I don't know for sure. Um, verse 11. Here we go. It set, itself, it set itself up to be as great as the commander of the army of the Lord. It took away the daily sacrifice from the Lord, and his sanctuary was thrown down. Because of rebellion, the Lord's people and the daily sacrifices were given over to it. It prospered in everything it did, and truth was thrown down to the ground. Remember what Antiochus did. He outlawed the reading of Torah. Truth was thrown to the ground. You could not do it no more. Okay. Thank you. I think they're trying to say something there. I felt I took that personally. All right. I want to read this to you really quick. This is, um, I'll close here. This is a quote from uh, the book of Maccabees, 1 Maccabees. Now, we don't have that book in our Bibles. It is not uh, considered to be an inspired book uh, like Matthew, Mark, or Luke, or John. But it is nevertheless a book that was highly revered by the Jewish people and read for hundreds of years and is still read today by the Jewish people and by many Christian groups as well. So it has a lot of important value to us to understand some of the culture and history. But 1 Maccabees records these events that Daniel is talking about um, prophetically speaking. But I want to read you this quote from 1 Maccabees. It's important because it records letters that the king, Antiochus Epiphanes, sent to Jerusalem. And here's what he says. It says, And the king sent letters by messengers to Jerusalem and to the cities of Judah, and he directed them saying this, to follow the following customs that were strange to our land, to forbid burnt offerings and sacrifices and drink offerings in the sanctuary, to profane Sabbaths and feasts, to defile the sanctuary and the priests, to build altars in sacred precincts with shrines for idols, to sacrifice swine and unclean animals, and to leave our children uncircumcised. They were to make themselves abominable by everything unclean and profane so that they should forget the law and change all the ordinances. And whoever does not obey the king will die. That's Antiochus Epiphanes. And when you look at the second little horn in the book of Revelation, what does he do? He puts a mark on everybody. He changes the laws. He forbids the reading of God's word. He says you have to obey him as God. He sits in the temple of God proclaiming himself to be God. And if you don't obey him, you die. 
He's a type of antichrist. You're exactly right. Any other thoughts? We'll close here. Father, we thank you for the time. I pray that you would bless us by giving us more fuller understanding of the things that we read. Prepare us, Father, for the things ahead. Help us to have a steady faith in the midst of it all. In Jesus' name, amen.